Hello, welcome to episode 10 of What's Humble Call Lies and Reruns. I'm Mike Lawson. I used to have a weekly storytelling podcast, and now I'm sharing those stories with you here on the Afterthought Media feed. Hello. Hi, friends. Uh, on this episode, I'm going to start with a story that I wrote called The Castaway. It's about my sister, you'll see. Um, if you are a subscriber to my illustrated zine, um, as I told you on a couple episodes ago, right in here, there's a few stories that showed up in the zine because they're, I think, some of the best things I've ever written. So if you hate this, you're going to hate pretty much the rest of it. So <laughs> this one's called The Castaway. It was originally published on Monday, July 23rd of 2012. And here you go. Episode 37, The Castaway. Imagination and life lessons, warm weather and playing till the streetlights turn on. Summertime and the living is easy. Hi, my name's Mike Lawson and I tell what some will call lies. Um, I really love telling stories. I love, I love, telling, I love telling, telling stories. Telling stories. What some would call lies. 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 Vomit. You lying son of a gun. Kinda creepy son of a son of a bitch. Son of a bitch. He said. She said. I said. What the hell? Liar, liar, pants on fire. I love your dress. And I'm not making this up. You are a goddamn liar. I'm back, bitches. <laughs> I love telling stories. This podcast is in no particular order a collection of stories from my life that I retell as accurately as I see fit. Those three glorious months of summer vacation were the best times of my childhood. The exhilaration of independence that came with the eight hours my sister Julie and I would have when mom and dad went to work was sweeter than the icing on any birthday cake. Julie is four years older than I am. Four years that made her, at different times, a babysitter a best friend, a worst enemy, a mystery, a role model, and a bad example. Sherwood Schwartz was our best friend for many summers. We had no idea who the guy was, but we did know that his name was large in the credits for both the Brady Bunch and the Gilligan's Island reruns that we consumed like that crazy Chinese guy consumes hot dogs at all of those hot dog eating competitions you see on the news. Both The Brady Bunch and Gilligan's Island were played a few times each morning, and we watched them all, dipped in water and swallowed without chewing. One of my favorite episodes of Gilligan's Island is from season one. Gilligan attempts to save a drowning Marianne and ends up almost drowning himself. Luckily, Skipper saves the pair. But for the rest of the episode, Gilligan is trying to do heroic things, trying to get noticed as a hero, and the others on the island set up fake emergencies, hoping to give Gilligan a chance to redeem himself. At the end of the episode, some headhunter shows up on the island, real danger, and Gilligan, thinking that it's just another setup, fearlessly battles the headhunter and saves all his friends. Jumping and 
During those summer months, once our parents got home from work, we were allowed to leave our apartment and go outside to play. Julie and I never played in the same crowds outside. She had her friends and I had mine. And unlike during the school year, after dinner, we were allowed to go outside and play some more until dark. This was a time when the days felt like years, where new friends appeared like a summer storm and disappeared just as quickly. A time where the stress of school, where the teachers, the rules, the library late fees, and the smushed peanut butter and jelly sandwiches were so far away that we started forgetting they even existed. A time when the name brand on your sneakers didn't matter. Nights smelled like smoldering charcoal barbecues in the hibiscus bushes we were hiding in, and they tasted like vanilla ice cream and fresh strawberries eaten in front of an episode of America's Funniest Home Videos. those days, pardon the cliche, in the good old days, Julie and I hopped from couch to coffee table, coffee table to armchair, never touching the carpet because it was molten lava. And I loved acting out that scene from the Gilligan's Island episode where Gilligan heroically fights a headhunter he didn't know was really hunting heads. At lunch, the kitchen turned into a diner where I would write out menus and cook lunch for all my regulars. Well, at least Julie. At age seven, the menu included top ramen made in the microwave, but I would cook it on the stove for extra loss in dollars that Julie would make while I was cooking. I could cook French toast, and I was really good at cooking grilled cheese. Understandably, as we aged, the four years between Julie and I started to become a bigger and bigger issue. What was once a little stream snaking through the Arizona desert had turned into a canyon that is rather grand. Symptoms of age started popping up. She started hanging out with boys, she started wearing a Bob Marley t-shirt, and she started burning incense in her room. And she started caring more about her friends and pop music than playing with her annoying little brother. And then when she started walking right through the torrents of deadly lava and skipping lunches at my diner, it was clear that the fantasy land summers of my youth were gone, that I was a castaway. Then you spread your wings and you take the sky. I've heard people argue that children should be kept in school year-round, that long summer breaks expose children to danger and impede learning. But looking back, my summers were incredibly valuable to my education. 
It was those long summer breaks that taught me that bliss does exist. Taught me how to love a sister. Taught me that girls eventually grow into women. And like Gilligan, I learned that begging for attention and recognition won't do you any good. But if you're patient, if you just sit right back and relax, it'll all work out. Up next is a story called Dirty Summer, and it was originally published on Monday, July 30th of 2012, and I'm sharing it with you now. Here you go. Working for two men that are addicted to amphetamines has its perks. When I was 16, I worked at Knott's Berry Farm in Buena Park, California. I was a roaming balloon vendor. That means I dressed up in stiff black pants, a white collared shirt, and a royal blue bow tie and vest. And then I walked all over the amusement park, holding this huge bouquet of helium-filled balloons. I was told about once a week, normally by older women, that I looked like a young John Ritter. I think that it had something to do with the outfit because the frequency of people that noticed this small resemblance while I was in costume versus the number of people that noticed it out of costume was pretty drastic. It was a rather easy summer job, and I think I was pretty good at it too. I wasn't employed by the actual amusement park, but by a third-party vendor that had a contract with Knott's Berry Farm to sell balloons in the park. Our balloon office was under the Kingdom of the Dinosaur ride, and the guys that owned the company were named Steve and Jeff, and they were both addicted to some sort of drug. I think it was speed, um, but when it comes to drug use, I'm not incredibly experienced. Everything I know I learned from Law & Order. That's a title. Steve and Jeff would sit in the office preparing our balloons, and they would frequently leave the park and return with food and acting strung out on something. My really good friend Danny was also a balloon vendor at the park, and when we worked together, we played a little game. Well, I would call it a game slash scam. At the beginning of the shift, we would choose one style of balloon to sell for a dollar higher than the actual price. For example, if the Snoopy on the Moon balloon normally sold for $5, Danny and I would sell it for 6 that day. I would walk all around the park going wherever I wanted, and it was very normal for me to see the same families over and over again because they were circling the park, I was circling the park, we were just in different areas. Hey, there's that John Ritter lookalike again. And at the end of our shift, Danny and I would each pocket the extra dollars, and we would see who made the most at the end of the shift. Sure, it was kind of a competition, but really, we both won. On these days when we had a special balloon, I would push it like a Korean liquor store owner pushes that last gallon of milk that's set to expire tomorrow. 
When kids would walk up alone, I was very blatant about it. I'd pull it down from my balloon bouquet and show it to the kid. This balloon's really cool, I'd say. I only have a couple more left because all the kids keep buying it. It's so cool. And then they'd run back to their parents and beg for the money. For younger kids that walked up with their parents, it was a little more difficult. While the parents fingered my bouquet, I'd pull down the daily special and hit it around. I'd make sound effects. I'd let it shine in the sun. And most of the time, I was pretty successful. If the kid had any choice, if the parent said, Which balloon do you want, Jose? I would usually win. So we would take this extra cash, which usually amounted to less than $20 a day, and we'd hang out for hours at Knott's Berry Farm after our shift ended. The money bought us some of the overpriced concessions, so in a way, it was just recycling. large group of friends that would hang out at Knott's during those summer days, and it was a fun distraction to see them as I walked through Camp Snoopy or Fiesta Village. I liked friends coming up and hugging me while I was working, and I enjoyed sneaking friends into the break area under the Good Time Theater in Charleston Square. When it was lunchtime, I would put my huge bouquet of balloons under a netted ramp next to our office. I'd stick my head in the office and let Steve and Jeff know I was going to lunch, and that was that. On many occasions, however, Steve and Jeff were busy doing what Steve and Jeff did off property. So there was a yellow notepad duct taped to the door of the office and a pen tied to it with a balloon string. I would write, Mike, went to lunch 11.30, and then I'd go take my break. My lunch normally included a Dr. Pepper and a mini bag of shortbread cookies, super healthy. But if I had cash, if it was one of those special balloon days, I would go to the Lakeview break area and buy some hot french fries and get a Knott's Berry punch from the fountain. After lunch, I would go back to retrieve my balloons, and sometimes Steve and Jeff were still gone. My note still on the door. And I would rip the note off the door and write a new one. Mike went to lunch 12 o'clock. And then if they weren't back at 12.30, I'd do the same thing. Mike went to lunch at 12.30. Some days I would have three or four lunch breaks before they ever got back. What great closure it would be for this little story if I could tell you that I was eventually caught ripping off the druggies. Wouldn't it be nice to say that I learned a very important lesson here? That I really paid the price for those bad choices? That I'm a better man after getting found out? But actually none of that happened. In fact what did happen was Danny and I were both scheduled to work the very busy Labor Day weekend. 
but we both wanted instead to spend that last weekend of summer with our friends, so we simply stopped going to work. Well, we still went to Knott's Berry Farm, we just didn't go to work. And this is completely true. Since that Labor Day weekend in 1997, nobody has ever told me that I looked like John Ritter. I am done. Two stories shared. And believe it or not, I have two more for you if you want to come back. On the next episode of What's on Call Lies and Reruns, I'm going to share a story called The Phantom, which is about the tricky relationship I have with my father. And another story called House Slippers, Frozen Turkeys, and Charitable Giving. And that is about a turkey dinner. And you won't want to miss it. So I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. I like to eat pigs.